It's really been that I have had the most incredible career because I've listened to my mentors, even if I didn't know they were my mentors at the time. You know, people who were watching out for me, people who saw something in me that I didn't see in myself, who have sort of said, did you think about doing this? And if you didn't do that, you're going to be disappointed. And so when people ask me, how did I get to where I am today? And I do get that question a lot. I usually respond first by saying, I'm not dead yet, the Monty Python line. But the second one is that I didn't plan any of this. This is the Public Health Insight Podcast. Before we move on, it is important to note that the views expressed in this podcast are our own and do not represent any of the organizations we work for or are affiliated with. You're listening to the Public Health Insight Podcast, your go-to space for all things public health and global health, from the sustainable development goals to the social determinants of health, as well as interesting dialogues about the diverse career opportunities that exist in these fields. Remember to subscribe to the podcast and leave us a rating on Apple Podcasts and Spotify so other people like you can benefit from our content. My name is Gordon, your host for this episode, along with my co-host LaShawn and a special guest who is a world-renowned expert in health research. LaShawn, what's up? Hey Gordon, I'm really excited to talk to this world-renowned expert in health research. What can we expect in this episode? This expert who we'll be speaking to is a senior ranking person at the Canadian Institutes of Health Research. And of course, we'll be speaking to them about how the process of research works, funding, and what are those research priorities that are out there in the context of Canada? Yeah, it's going to be especially interesting to see the shifts in priorities since March 2020 when the pandemic was announced and seeing how different research funding was allocated to different research Mm -hmm. initiatives to see how knowledge is actually generated at its core and to see the processes in which they're disseminated. I'm I'm looking forward to just talking about research funding and its priorities, like I mentioned, because it's going to lead us over the next 5-10 years in terms of the knowledge outputs we put out there. So super excited to have this discussion, but mm. let's get into it. Who mm. are we talking to today? All right, let's get into it. Dr. Michael Strong was appointed president of the Canadian Institutes of Health Research CIHR in October 2018. Prior to joining CIHR, Dr. Strong was Dean of the Schulich School of Medicine and Dentistry and a distinguished university professor at Western University. From 2000 to 2010, he served as Chief of Neurology and Co-Chair of the Department of Clinical Neurological Sciences at the London Health Sciences Centre and Western University. He also served as a co-chair of the Canadian ALS Research Consortium and is a former member of the Board of Directors of the ALS Society of Canada. He is a recipient of both the Sheila Essie Award and the Forbes Norris Award, the only Canadian to have received both awards for ALS research. He was also awarded the Queen Elizabeth II Diamond Jubilee Medal in 2012 for his contribution to ALS research and care and is a fellow of the Canadian Academy of Health Sciences. Dr. Strong, welcome to the Public Health Insight Podcast. Welcome. Really excited to chat with you folks. And so are we. So the first thing I wanted to to get 
your thoughts on and learn a little bit more about you is reading your bio sounds like you had a very interesting journey to where you are now. So tell us about your story about how you got interested in medicine and health research. So I've had a great journey. Um, Not over yet, (laughs) as far as I'm aware. And I'm going to go right back to the beginning then. Most people don't ask about that. So in high school, I had a biology teacher, Dr. Prem Nanda. He had come over from India. And to this day, I don't know what his PhD and such was in, but he taught us our grade 13 biology. And he started a program that the government had actually begun at that time where we could actually spend three months of the school year working in what was like a biosphere. And so in, the, in one of the gymnasiums at the school, there was this massive biosphere. And you could do work in the marshes. You could do whatever you wanted to do. You still had to attend some of your classes and such, but it was meant to be really this open concept learning type thing. And one of the projects that I worked on at the time was that he hooked me up with the pathologist at the local hospital. And that pathologist would let me look at slides of human brain tissue and such. And I started to get kind of asking questions around, well, why are there these layers? Why do we see the cortical layers that are in place? And, I, and so my, my little research project that I was working on at the time, and I had two of them, one of them was on, could you look at the different neuronal cell populations and their organization by different regions of the brain and differentiate those regions of the brain based on those structures, right? That sounds brilliant. Well, and, but on the other one, which was equally as much fun, my father was a, a microbiologist. Um, and uh, he had been in charge of, of quality control at the Heinz factory. That, but then he left that and he went to St. Clair College where he set up the first program for a food quality measurement. Remember, I was from Leamington area, big agricultural area part. And he supplied me with the chemicals that I could make a meringue pie filling with no natural components whatsoever uh, in it. And so as part of at the end of all of this, right, when they we were displaying, people were sampling these things. And, and the reason why I was doing it was that I was also a re- really big baseball fan, right? We would go down to Detroit to watch baseball games there. But part of the thrill of going there was to have one of these killer hot dogs. Just amazing. But if you ever looked up the actual composition of the hot dogs, you would soon realize they weren't that far different from what I was making at the bench to serve to people. Yeah, there's a madness that goes through all of this. And that was really the beginning of it. You know, I often say to high school kids is that you have no idea where your mentorship is going to come from or who's going to get you started on a path. But there was one teacher to this day, and it was amongst a group of really great high school teachers that really got me thinking about science was fascinating. There was things about the human body that would be really cool to understand. I went to Queens and started my undergraduate in biochemistry. And I was one of these individuals that couldn't, I wasn't really sure what I was going to be doing. I knew medicine was on the list, but I also loved phys chem. I loved organic chem. I loved analytical chem and I loved biochemistry. I thought I loved math, but I soon discovered I didn't. So I did all of those in my second year. I was one of the really rare people that they would allow to do the third year biochemistry in their second year. And so my my doors were open and and then I got into medicine. And and I have to say, uh, it was really interesting because in my training program, we could do electives. But just prior to going off to elective, for whatever reason, the chief resident, Pauliston, I still remember him to this day, had taken a real shine to me. Like we used to, at some other podcast, we'll talk about life as a medical student. It was a great experience for other reasons sometimes. But he would take me around to see really interesting cases. And so one day he took me to see a case on the ward. And he said, Mike, you're never going to see this again. And at that point, Demas White, who was just this amazing Queen Square trained neurologist, 
was on the ward and came to join us for it. Now, Janus White had this old Queen Square hammer, which was, well, I'm sure went back to biblical times. Because whenever he would hit somebody, because I had a Queen Square hammer is to test your reflexes, right? Every time he would hit somebody's knee or elbow, I swear there was a little cloud of dust that arose from his hammer. It was that old. And they showed me a case of Lou Gehrig's disease. And, and so immediately following that, I went to Denmark for an elective for three months there. And this was to a, a center that I was going to do some neuromuscular just following around for it. And I saw case after case after case of Lou Gehrig's disease coming in, which really sort of troubled me about the state of Denmark, to use a pun, I guess. But then I soon quickly realized that what a population referral center was like, because it was a national referral center for all of this. But I had been taught that this was an extremely rare entity, and here I was seeing tons of it. And I started to get interested in, so what was the epidemiology of this? Why was it uh, that this was happening? For it? And then after that, I, I came to London here to do initially my medicine training, because that's the way we started in those days, and then switched across over to neurology training. And this was the mecca of neurology training in North America at the time. Henry Barnett here, Charles Drake, the list just goes on. It's just an amazing, amazing cadre of people. And one of them was Arthur Hudson. And Arthur ultimately became a, a mentor, a real mentor for me. I'm the Arthur Hudson chair in ALS research at this time. And it was Arthur who, when I was um, just starting off as chief resident here in front of the nurse's desk one day to me, and Arthur was the quietest, most polite, English-trained neurologist really a gentleman, like a gentleman's gentleman. And uh, here I am, chief resident, standing in front of the nurse's desk, all the other residents around. And he says, Mike, if you don't go off and do a postdoctoral fellowship and do something, you have wasted your career and your life. And you will regret it till the day you die. Uh, and I will be thoroughly disappointed. You know, and I'm sitting there, it's like having your grandfather, you know, say to you that you're really a nice kid. I don't know why you're my progeny. And if I had a choice, you probably wouldn't be, right? It's just that devastating. Anyways, I went off. Uh, and uh, did a little bit of a tour going around. And at that time, having come out of this program as a chief resident, you had your pick of pretty much anywhere you wanted to go for postdoc in North America. And I had a pretty good idea where I was going until I got down to the National Institutes of Health and met up with Ralph Garudo. Ralph Garudo was the senior biologist, senior researcher in Carlton Gadgesek's lab. Carlton Gadgesek had won the Nobel Prize less than 10 years before that for the discovery of basically mad cow disease amongst cannibals, so the origins of, of prion-based disease. Arthur had invited Carlton up to give a talk. Carlton was a bit of an interesting character. He's now passed. And I really thought I would never work with Carlton. I just didn't like his teaching style. I really didn't like it. We went, sat on the floor in Arthur's house for what was meant to be a dinner, and we listened to Carlton talk for hours on end. Anyways, Arthur again said, you got to go there. So I sat down with Ralph and I was going down for one, one year just to get some experience in all of this. And I had a pretty good idea what the experiments were that I might want to be doing at the time. And Ralph just said to me, and he said, look, your experiments aren't going to work. What you want to do hasn't been done before. And we just have no idea. But he said, that's why we have the NIH. The idea is for you to come here and do those things because nobody else gets to do them. We're an intramural program for it. And, and then after that, he said, and you really don't want to be here in, in Bethesda, Maryland, because we really want to be doing some of the work that I need you to do, which is some of the animal experimentation, and we need to develop a model for ALS. So he took me out to Fort Detrick, which is about 30 miles away for it. Now, Fort Detrick is the biological warfare's lab, 
and it's actually the National Cancer Labs are there as well. It's also where the level three plus four facilities were for doing primate research. He, so I went in, uh, and, and then he also said, no, you also don't want to live. You just, we just had our, our daughter who had just been born uh, and such. And he said, you want to live here in Frederick because you can afford it better. So he'd already found a condo. He had already figured out what experiments I was going to be doing. And I stayed for three years. And to this day, our, uh, to this day Ralph and I still talk. And I've had him speak on a number of occasions. We've co-supervised him. And he has been a mentor for life uh, for me. And I loved it. I absolutely loved the research. And so I came back to London as a clinician scientist and had at that time an MRC training fellowship, which meant I had a five-year protected component of that, which really started my career off. And then after that, it's just that I've been always open to you know, different ideas, thinking about things differently. I, I didn't start off thinking I'd have an academic career, ever. I didn't think I'd be doing neurodegenerative biology research. Right? I sure as heck didn't think I would be a chair of a program and a chief of service. Uh, but there was a need for that. And so Steve Lowney and I, a really great colleague, who was chief of neurosurgery, and I became chief of neurology at the same time. We were pretty much close, to, close in age. We had great visions for what the department wanted to do. And so we spent a decade rebuilding it. And then Carol Herbert, another great mentor in all of this, Carol was the dean prior to me, really worked hard. And it's a lesson I learned in the early days about how do you mentor people to be thinking about doing these jobs later on in life. And she said, Mike, you should really think about being a dean. To which my response was, Carol, I really thought you liked me. But I started to work with some other colleagues and retooled how my lab was working. Now, and then went into the dean's process and became the dean of medicine, as you folks are aware. But it was also perhaps one of the worst times for me to do it because my lab at that point had two CIHR grants. We were putting out 12 and 13 papers a year. We were fundamentally working on the mechanisms of cell biology underlying Lou Gehrig's, which I wanted to do. And then I got to about the eight-year mark and some change, and I got a call. Would you be interested in applying for the position of president of CIHR? And my answer was no. So I had no interest in it whatsoever. And it was, it was one of the worst interviews I've ever had in my life. Like, really bad. Like, really, really bad. Uh, part. And it wasn't that. It was just the wrong questions were asked, like, like questions that made no sense uh, at all. And so I, I thanked them, and I said, look, I'm really not interested in this job. I really love being a dean. Uh, I still had two years and some change to go to finish it up. We were starting to do some really great things about thinking what a new medical school would look like. Programs were coming online. And there were other opportunities on my horizon that I was looking at. And I didn't want to give up my research, which was really you know, the heart of what I do. So then I got a call again about a week later from some colleagues in the country who will go unnamed but forever owe me a beer. And they said, Mike, you've got to do this. You know, you've at least got to look at this because there are only a couple of people in the country that can actually bring CIHR back from where it was and the experiences I had and such forth. And I said, well, thanks. That's really nice. But no, right? I'm not interested in doing this at all. But, you know, it's really honored that you would ask. Uh, about a week goes by later and then I get another call, right? Now, this time I get a call from the actual most senior person in the headhunting organization. And he starts off by saying, I, I take it the other interviews haven't gone all that well. And I said, from my end, they were perfect. But part of no, are you struggling to understand? Uh, but I'm really honored that you asked all the rest of those sorts of things. And, and he, what he got out of me was he said, look, would you at least consider it? Let us put our, your name in our back pocket. Should we get to that point? So the first thing I said is, listen, I've been a, a departmental chair, chief of service, and now a dean. I know what it means to put somebody's name in your back pocket, which means that it's on the table in front of you. So no. But well, here's what I'll do. I was headed off to my mom's house. My dad had passed when I was a teenager. But I was off uh, to my mom's house. 
And she needed her decks rebuilt. And I love carpentry. It's what I, one of the things I love doing as a hobby for it. And I said, look, I'm going to head down there. My son's joining me. Uh, one day and I will chat about it. And I said, you know, I'll think about it while I'm doing this because I'll be there two weeks and it's kind of nice. Do that. So I came back from that. I built the deck and all the rest of that. They didn't call. And I thought, this is terrific. This is terrific. This is exactly what I wanted. A few weeks go by and then I get a call. We've changed the deadline for application to accommodate you should you have had favor writing. There's a long story after that, but that's just how I got to this. It's really been that I have had the most incredible career because I've listened to my mentors, even if I didn't know they were my mentors at the time. You know, people who were watching out for me, people who saw something in me that I didn't see in myself, who have sort of said, did you think about doing this? And if you didn't do that, you're going to be disappointed. And so when people ask me, how did I get to where I am today? And I do get that question a lot. I usually respond first by saying, I'm not dead yet, the Monty Python line. But the second one is that I didn't plan any of this. There was none of it that was planned, uh, other than uh, going to university and thinking I might want to go into medicine. And then after that, it was just, this is where I landed. Wow, that's incredible. And just to kind of see the progression from high school, you know, working in the biosphere, talking to the high school teachers and that program, then transitioning into medical school and getting the different nudges and pushes that you might not have expected. And then currently to your position as the president of the Canadian Institutes of Health Research, very incredible journey. And so for those of our listeners who aren't as familiar with CIHR, what should they know about this organization? So it's an incredible organization. Having said all of that about it, I didn't want to be the president of it. Before, right? <laughs> okay. Uh, there were other reasons for that. But it is an amazing organization. So it is the only federally mandated agency whose sole responsibility is to conduct health research in order to change the health outcomes of Canadians and do that based on everything from fundamental health research, and that's at the molecular level, all the way through to health policy component. It has its own act. It's called the CIHR Act. It is an arm's length relationship to the government for a series, but my reporting line is directly to the Minister of Health and through the Minister of Health to Cabinet. So it's, it's really a very clear signal of the government. Now, it was preceded by the MRC, the Medical Research Council of Canada, and Henry Friesen had the amazing foresight back in the late 1990s to say this needs to be bigger than it is. And that's how the CIHR came to be and, and with all of its various reaches. But it is this incredible organization that's really there to help serve the country through ensuring that we're funding the absolute best research in the health research sector that we possibly can. Yeah, and more specifically about your role as president, what are some of the things you do on a day-to-day? -day? I'm sure it looks different every day. Well, I start by making the coffee. Same with me. <laughs> yep. yeah, I got to start somewhere. You know, I've been lucky throughout the entirety of my career. I have never had a job where the two days are the same, right. ever. Um, and this is no exception to that. But in sort of global packages, and I divide it up into kind of like three different parts when people ask me. So the first part is that as the president of the Canadian Institute of Health Research, I am what's called a governor and council appointment. So I'm appointed by cabinet. And I'm appointed to the level of a deputy head. So when you think about deputy heads, you think about deputy ministers, about presidents, about agency heads, and so on for that. And so we are of the government of the country. We, so on, on one hand, I am there uh, to ensure that the health agency is, is also reflecting in its research initiatives the needs of the country as they are seen by the government. 
And we'll talk later about the pandemic, but there's an incredible example of where that role comes first and foremost to it. The second is that I have a responsibility to ensure that the research programs that are delivered in this country are fair, are transparent, are equitable, are progressive, that we are, we are moving forward. And there's a variety of ways in which we do that. I have a budget of around $1.3 billion to do that on an annual basis. And then I'm also the CEO of an organization that has almost 600 of the most amazing people um, I've ever worked with. To almost two-thirds of them have advanced degrees, and those, everybody, 100% of them, have a, a love of health research and what we're doing which makes it an absolute thrill to work there. So every day I go in, something from each of those pots is being dealt with, right, uh, for it. So it's probably easier just to say these are the big pots rather than, right, because there are so many different faces to them. That's amazing to hear about in just hearing your passion throughout, even though you gave us that interesting story about how you reluctantly took the position and now you're enjoying the contributions you can make to the health of, of Canadians. Can you describe some of the work that CIHR supports and what are those pillars that CIHR focuses on? Yeah, and so it's, it's interesting. So the four pillars, in some senses, it's always been unfortunate that we called them pillars to begin mm. with, right? Mm -hmm. I would have called it you know, the, the four themes, the four integrated themes of what we do across the board because they all line up. So from the very earliest part of fundamental research, what's the biological mechanism X? Right, what might that be? You know, down to DNA methylations, looking at animal modeling and such. So, so the real foundations of science moving forward. But that science and the foundations of it move forward to how do you translate that into clinical research, right? Which is what people would tend to call the pillar two component. Through to into doing the clinical trials types work. And then how do we actually use that to inform policy? A really critical component of it. I just returned from the prairies last night, having spoken... Uh, all week at different universities about what is the vision of the new CIHR? Well, the vision of the new CIHR is the vision of the original CIHR, which is that we fund the very best of research across all of that in order to try and deliver better outcomes for Canadians. Now, at the end, one of the areas that I, I really need to develop further in that is that how do you know, and this is where your program and the training that you folks have, how do you know you have better health? Like, how do you know that? And CIHR is not traditionally an agency that funds and follows or funds and fosters. We've just sort of fund and disappear and then just hope everybody does what we, we said they were going to do and what they said they were going to do, which by and large everybody does. As a scientist, you just do the best you can right for it. But increasingly, we're turning to the question of what's the evidence right, that we are making an impact and particularly as we look at our strategic directions for it generationally. Right? Nothing we're going to do is change things tomorrow. That's rare. It happens. My example there is just look at the RNA-based vaccines. I love saying to my colleagues at the ministerial tables and such for it, isn't it amazing how fast we came up with an RNA-based vaccine on the basis of 30 years of basic cellular research? And isn't it amazing that 20 years ago, Canada, Peter Koulis and his work discovered nanoparticles to administer things. You couldn't have the immediate outcomes we had in terms of bringing an RNA vaccine if you didn't have the generational work that went on beforehand for it. So for me, it's all about how do we ensure that we're fostering that? And I have multiple ways of doing it by these different pillars or the continuum. I'm glad that you brought up that point because many people think of research as being primarily focused on, you know, the clinical setting. 
So could you talk about more about the, the health systems wide uh, research or population health research and where that fits in CIHR? When CIHR was first formed, right, so we go back 2000, so 22 years ago, we've been through our childhood. We had a bit of an interesting teenage years, as teenagers always do. And now we're back into, oh, gee, the parents actually knew what they were doing. So 20 and plus for it. So if you go back and look, when the CIHR was originally set up, at that time, what was called knowledge synthesis or knowledge translation, it's now called KPMB, you know, called knowledge mobilization. Canada was burning up the pavement. Like we were world leaders in knowledge synthesis. And there's lots of data that supports that. And it's typical Canadian research on rather thin funding. Well, traditionally, we're recognized as really being strong researchers using, you know, like every penny. And then over the course of the next 20 years, it's not that we lost that expertise in the country. We've got great people in that. We failed to clearly continue to support it to build further. And so one of the things that we heard very clearly as we were developing our strategic plan was that we need to get back to some of our roots. We need to get back to really understanding what does a learning health systems mean? And so you'll see uh, that just this spring, in fact, I took my research portfolio, which was the single large portfolio that does all that granting, and I split it in two. I still have a vice president of research programs, so Christian Baron, who's joined us out of McGill, to do that, a, a brilliant microbiology researcher, great experience, and will help as we're moving forward on some critical questions around uh, what do our programs look like and how do we deliver them and what are our foci there. But what we made a split to was a vice president research learning health systems, very clearly delineating that we're back. And within that, right, is we've got our, our brand new clinical trials fund, which is meant to develop ultimately um, a pan-Canadian strategy for the delivery of clinical trials research in this country, all the way from nascent molecule, all the way through to looking at how, it's, how, how the trials impacted on health populations. We have the Center for Research into Pandemic Preparedness and Health Emergencies, brand new, came out of the pandemic, right, is sitting within that. Our patient-orientated research network, which was called Strategic Patient-Orientated, is now simply the whole package is called Patient-Orientated Research. Our research ethics is all buried within all of that. So one of their very first tasks is to do something that we haven't had for almost 11 years, which is we don't have a strategic plan on knowledge mobilization for the CIHR. And so one of the very first things is to do that. Now, and this is coming to really answer your question, so, so why did we decide to call it a learning health systems portfolio? I'm preaching to the absolute converted because I know your curriculum, right? But learning health systems is far more dynamic right, than simply saying we're going to do public policy, right? Because the utilization of the information that is generated, whether it be the basic cellular work or whether it be the policy development work or whether it be the outcomes analysis work or whether it be equity analysis work, has to be translated into usable packages for the consumer who's going to use that. So that might be the health professionals. It might be public health agencies. It might be the federal government. It might be research agencies. And each one of those requires a foundation underlying it that can rapidly adapt to that kinds of different types of knowledge and information that needs to be brought forward. And then it has to be iterative, right? It makes no sense to bring forward policy suggestions on cannabis or on opioid crisis or whatever it might be that we're looking at, if you're then not building the rigorous systems that allow you to evaluate, did that actually work? And so that you begin to start to see what's been called that virtuous circle, public health, 
that information is how do you continue to use it constantly? That's a learning health system, right? So that's, that's where we are. Tammy Clifford, who actually did her PhD here in the Epi and Biostats Department at Western. I didn't know her until we brought her on board to head up the research programs. And she's absolutely passionate about this. So I've got two people now in our research programs who are incredibly skilled, brilliant in their own rights, and are really putting the signature of the CHR uh, back together. Wonderful. It's so great to hear the passion in your team. It's looking very positive going forward in terms of health systems learning as well. Now, in terms of, I know you mentioned earlier, $1.3 billion. That's a lot of money. And from a public health perspective, we're always curious to know, what, what does equitable funding look like in health research? And what does that look like in practice, especially managing all that money? How do we make sure we have that equitable component to it? Yeah. So maybe the first thing to do is just break out a little bit where it goes. It's actually a fairly simple pie chart. So if, if you took that 1.3 and some change, about 80 million of it is what I require to run the day-to-day. So it's less than 6%. So we make lean look like, you're not kidding, right? So it's one of the issues that I have to deal with. But all the rest of the money goes to research right, into the hands of researchers. So about a third of it, 31% of the funding, goes into what are called priority-driven or ring-fenced or mandate-driven initiatives. So patient-orientated research, new center, right, HIV, hepatitis. Initiatives that have come forward from the federal government's du jour that have been, we need to have research done in this domain. So a really good example of that would be, we're just finishing putting together Um, what the Pediatric Cancer Research Initiative is going to look like. That was in the federal mandate and then becomes a mandate to the minister to whom I report, and now I have to deliver that. I can't use those funds for anything else, right? They're within that. So that one-third, roughly, are things that have really crisp terms of reference around them. We ensure that the appropriate competitions are in place. We ensure that the right evaluations are in place and so on. So that leaves me uh, around 860 to be working with. And that's, again, divided into two pieces. The smallest piece of it, about 120 or so, is very strategic and it's delivered through the institutes. Because remember, it's the Canadian Institutes of Health Research. And they're the same ones that were put together 22 years ago, something we're going to be looking at and making sure we've got right. But they are very strategic. They're very interactive. They make leveraging money look like a fine art. So they work closely with other agencies, other countries, right? So we might have a cancer initiative. We might have something on mental health going forward or children's health or aging. And there's, there's a whole panacea there that all link together to t- talk about what a healthy outcome. All the rest of the money uh, goes out through our project competition. So the project grants, which we hold twice a year. And so those are the ones that everybody applies to. I did it for my career every spring or every fall. You're writing a grant uh, to go in to be adjudicated by your peers. And then based on that adjudication and the scoring system that goes along with that, it's basically just we work into funding the top-ranked grants, and then they receive their funding going forward. So that's how the system kind of works. And speaking of grants, I'm aware of this Policy Research for Health Systems Transformation series of grants that was recently launched by CIHR. So can you tell us a little bit about how that came about and what the overarching goals of that uh, series of grants are? Yeah, so we have, so that's a new one, right, that's come forward. And that's, so that really speaks to a terrific example of what can happen uh, when you look at your, your scientific institutes, those 13. So this is Rick Glazier, right, who uh, directs one of our scientific institutes, really that focuses on these kinds of 
patient outcomes, population outcomes. We have another one that talks about uh, population policy, right? Uh, healthy cities, those types of work. So we have really nice coverage of the water on that front. But what Rick has really done is brought together this really innovative set of grants, which is meant to do exactly what the title says, to look at how do you actually bring about transformative research that informs policy. So let me give you one really good example, which Rick loves to do, and, and I'm not going to do justice to him explaining it. So if you ever want to do a really good one of these as well, get Rick Glazier on. You'll love, you'll love the discussion. He gave me a great example of one of the provinces um, who, during the pandemic, as all provinces had to do, was really move towards virtual medical care. Now, in the early days, when that first came on, even though we'd been dabbling with it as a country and there were a lot of really great pockets and research on it, this was not dabbling. This was full force because people could not come in to see consultants. And what, what they learned uh, was that for the vast majority of tertiary or quaternary consults, patients didn't need to actually be seen, right? Uh, not with a hands-on sort of evaluative component. You could actually do that with a nurse practitioner in the room, or you could do it by directly questioning the patient. You could do it by having the data and the images sent to you. Um, and then you can make decisions in real time as to whether an intervention was required at that moment in time or whether it put off. Once we started to come out of the pandemic, what was clear was that was actually working really well. And it was saving tens of millions of dollars per quarter in this particular province uh, for doing that. Tens of millions of dollars that could be fed back into dealing with surgical wait times, right, or other aspects for it. And so this research grant is really designed along the lines of the concepts that were learned in there. Are there things that we do that we can do better and more efficiently with better outcomes and start to get some cost containment in the system that would then provide forward initiatives to deal with the issues du jour? So it's a brilliant initiative on he and his team's part and the collaborators who've come together. I think it's going to be fascinating to see how it lands, but it's putting your money where your mouth is in what we learned in the pandemic to see, okay, but don't just stop it. Thank you for listening to the Public Health Insight Podcast, your go-to space for informative conversations, inspiring community action. If you enjoy our podcast, be sure to subscribe and leave us a rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. See you in the next one.